Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Dana Perkins and you're listening to Switched On, the BNEF podcast. Since 2018, European oil majors have walked a fine line between retaining cash-generating legacy oil and gas operations on the one hand and ramping up investment in low-carbon activities on the other. But as record-high oil and gas prices on the back of the pandemic rebound and Russia's invasion of Ukraine has put the sector's climate ambitions in jeopardy in favor of energy security and profitability, how should shareholders react? This poses a dilemma for climate-conscious shareholders and lenders. What strategy should be adopted when neither engagement nor divestment have resulted in a meaningful impact in the face of heightened profits? And what approaches should be taken to keep portfolios net zero aligned through the inevitable ebbs and flows of commodity price cycles? So on today's show, we bring you a panel from one of BNEF's recent summits taking place in London, where sustainable finance analyst Ryan Lockhead chaired a panel that included Annika Brower, sustainability specialist at 91 Asset Management, alongside Ronan Hodge, technical lead analyst from Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, along with Tina Selvet, chief analyst for sustainable finance at Nordea Bank, and Peter Taylor, Corporate Engagement Program Director from Institutional Investors Group on Climate Change. Among the topics discussed were the approaches of asset managers who retain oil and gas investments on their books, but also have climate-conscious focus to their investment strategy. They also discussed the challenges around divestment of fossil fuel holdings and whether or not this is even the correct approach, especially in light of fiduciary duties. And if not, where can pressure best be applied? And lastly, they came to the fossil fuel companies themselves, their own varied strategies towards diversification of energy sources and the balance that they have to strike between energy security and the energy transition. For more information about BNF summits taking place in cities around the world and to see replays from some of the BNF talks and debates which took place at our recent event in London, head to about.bnef.com forward slash summit. As always, if you like this podcast, if you subscribe and you set up alerts on your phone, you'll receive one when we publish a future episode. And if you give us a review, it'll make us more discoverable by others. And now let's jump to the panel at the BNEF Summit London, which was titled, How Should Investors React to Oil Majors Reducing Their Climate Ambition? Since 2018, 
large oil and gas majors have largely maintained their legacy assets that have kept cash flowing, but have also been gradually trying to position themselves to present as being climate friendly. Indeed, BNF estimated that low carbon capital expenditures were $32 billion last year. That's 8.3% of the industry's total capex in that year, which was up from less than 1% in 2015. However, according to the IEA, the oil and gas sector was still responsible for 5.1 billion tonnes of CO2 emissions in 2022, which was 15% of the total global energy-related emissions in that year. What's more, with the advent of higher commodity prices, mainly sparked by Russia's invasion of Ukraine and other Black Swan events such as the pandemic, certain oil majors, including but not limited to Shell, BP, Total, Exxon, have taken one big step back on their climate commitments most often citing a duty to shareholders as the main driving force behind that. So I'm lucky enough today to be joined before wonderful panelists from a variety of different backgrounds and experiences. And we're going to try and glean as much information and different perspectives from them as possible. So welcome. First, we're gonna set the scene. We'll establish what's actually happening within the oil majors, particularly over the last five years on their operations, how they're reacting to changes in commodity prices, but maybe more specifically on how they're approaching climate change and how their commitments have changed in that period. Um, and then we're going to change, and the crux of the conversation is going to be about how financial institutions, investors, banks, insurers, whatever we want to get onto, depends how the conversation goes, how they should react and how they can react and what's up their sleeves in order to try and drive climate positive outcomes. First of all, we're going to set the scene. So I want to know from each of you about what you see and how it pertains to your particular role at Nordea Bank. So we're going to start with Tina, who used to be an oil analyst. And like, what have you seen happen in the oil and gas majors and on how their business strategy has developed in the last five years, and then more recently, how their climate strategies have, have developed and changed, and maybe not for the better? Uh, first of all, uh, I think we saw a change uh, within the oil and gas market uh, in 2018 approximately. Uh, when many of the oil companies, although they've tried before, uh, started to rephrase themselves uh, as not oil and gas companies any longer, but more broader energy companies. And much more focus when they talked about themselves uh, also and communicated about how they wanted to uh, be part of the energy transition and also how they communicated where in what part of the energy transition they wanted to work. And some of them also highlighted if they wanted to go into solar, if they want to go into wind power or if it was carbon capture and storage. So I think it was a lot of pressure on the companies at that time. Uh, then, uh, for the last one and a half years, I would say, after oil and gas prices uh, increased, of course, that was based on the uh, unfortunate situation and the war in Ukraine, uh, that this has changed a bit how uh, the oil companies, both uh, how they communicate, but also how they look at themselves, in my view, uh, because um, a bit how they, uh, how they talk about themselves now is, and, and the market is more, uh, rather than being the, uh, in a transition, it's more, uh, of course, this still is in the transition, but also how energy security has, you know, moved up on the agenda. And that has also done something with uh, the, uh, how they talk about where they invest, and also the amount of investments starting to increase again, at least in the short-term projects. Um, 
in the oil and gas sector. So not as much, of course, has something to do with oil and gas prices as well. But uh, in my opinion, it seems like it's a bit more relaxed, focusing on energy security and a bit less focus on the energy transition. And I hope that is not going to last for very long. Do you th on that, do you think that's a little bit short-sighted? from them to, to try and move away from thinking about the energy transition? I think if they focus on the short, shorter term project, which could be detailed projects, for example, that is projects that, is, uh, uh, that could come online very, uh, very fast. But if they think about more the uh, expensive, harder to get, uh, get projects that could take on average 10 to uh, 7 to 10 years before actually uh, from you start a project to you can see the oil and gas out in the market. I'm more worried about those projects because they won't help anything about the energy situation now and the energy crisis we had the last year and might have a tight market for, for the upcoming winter depends on how the winter will turn out. Yeah. But uh, uh, the longer-term project, uh, the more costly project, I am worried that that could turn out to be uh, stranded assets. Yeah, Peter, you're nodding. You, uh, you concur? Yes, I, I very much. Well, I, I very much concur with the, the timeline that, that Tina laid out. That sort of there was a, a shift, a shift of yes, a shift of economics of the oil and gas industry between 2018 and say 2021, 20 well 2022 onwards. Um, but also a shift of sort of narrative and sort of context and sort of the, the messaging very much so. But a couple of other distinctions I would make would be between, I think that's very true of Europe, right? So in Europe, there has been that shift, but Europe, Europe was a long way ahead of say North America and other parts of the world in, in terms of the oil and gas sector and remains so, right? I mean, I think to be fair is that yes, there, it is disappointing what's happened with particularly BP and Shell, but uh, I don't want to let them off the hook, but to put them in the same, to say that they've gone from sort of doing these interesting things two or three years ago to doing, you know, that they're just the same as, say, uh, uh, oil companies in, in other parts of the world is probably a, sort of an overstatement of how, how big that U-turn was. But the other um, distinction, perhaps, is, is, is the one that Ryan mentioned, the sort of the short-term versus long-term. And, and, I, and it's, I think that's perhaps where investors really need to kind of focus their engagement is, yes, it's not surprising in any industry that if your product goes up massively in price, there is a rethink of strategy. I mean, we shouldn't, in a sense, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be surprised, right? So the first thing is, how should investors react? Um, well, they shouldn't be that surprised. But it's that long-term versus short-term thing, right? And that is so much of engagement with companies, not just on oil and gas companies, not just on climate, but across any kind of issue. One of the key challenges for investors is to ensure that the management of a company have their long-term long -term shareholder value in mind. And I think that's where, you, where, the, where the focus of engagement should really be. Not sort of, is it rational to sell more oil when it's gone up a lot in price? Well, yes, it probably is rational. But is it rational to invest in, to increase your capex in oil and gas when, uh, when the IEA is saying, saying we're going to reach peak oil sooner than later? When Sinopec, in China is saying that, that, that oil or is it maybe it's gas demand in China is going to reach its peak really quite soon. Um, so there's a couple of thoughts. Uh, yeah, it's a very good point that the, the panel actually is about what investors should be doing. And uh, I'm going to pick you up on this running straight away after, but Peter, you're part of the IIGCC. Um, what, what can you do? What's within your, your scope to, to influence how investors are are influencing, are, are engaging with the oil and gas majors? 
it's, it's funny. I actually think part of our role, and we are a membership body, so what isn't our role is to tell them what they should be, how they should be voting, tell them how they should be investing. That is very much not our job. They are, they are for the, the fiduciaries, not us, and they will have different opinions on those questions. But I think that one of the sort of the more contextual or atmospheric things that we, we are working with, with our investor members on is, again, to this question, it's about don't overreact and don't underreact. So don't overreact and, and say, oh, it's all hopeless. No, there is so much to engage with oil and gas companies on, both long-term versus short-term, non-production um, emissions as well, capex in, in other parts of the energy sector, in, in renewable energy. So there's so much left to, to engage with oil and gas companies on. Um, but equally, don't underreact. You know, don't, this, is, this is a time for, this isn't a time for saying, oh, well, you know, oil prices have gone up. What can we do about it? So yeah, don't underreact and don't overreact. Runan, would you would you come in on that? The, the, the G funds is an umbrella organisation covering multiple different subsectors, so it's not just banks, investors, it's insurance, it's everyone. How how would you go about engaging with with those members? Yeah, sure. So um, yeah, for those that aren't, aren't familiar with G funds, it's it's a bringing together essentially of uh, net zero committed financial institutions across the entire ecosystem, asset owners, asset managers, banks, insurers, index providers, credit rating agencies, and Really, uh, similarly, we're not there to tell tell them what to do, <laughs> but we're there to kind of support that that net zero commitment they've made. And so, I guess the the, the way we're coming at this really is, w what is it that you know one needs to see to kind of back to Peter's earlier point about that short term versus long term. What is it that that that, that entire financial ecosystem wants to see from uh, energy companies, oil and gas majors? in terms of that, that, that strategy, and in particular, recognizing that the net zero transition is, is a real thing, 90% of um, governments have committed to it, um, maybe they won't achieve it, maybe they won't fulfill their, their ambition on that, um, but there's a big societal demand for it, um, and so therefore it's something that you know, one, needs a, one needs a strategy for, and that includes our, our current kind of energy providers. And so, you know, the work we've done really is to help provide frameworks, guidance, tools that kind of help frame that, that, that question, I suppose, back to the, back to the companies. Um, and so, yes, it is, it's disappointing when you, you sort of see this sense of um, uh, reduction in, in ambition, as you say. Um, and, and, but I think it's about giving uh, those different financial institutions yeah. the... The, the tools to kind of support that engagement to, to kind of ask the right questions about um, what, what that strategy looks like. And I think, uh, you know, it's only once you've kind of got that information that you can make a, uh, a decision as to whether, whether that investment or finance or insurance is, is, is you know, is, is going to be forthcoming, I suppose. Yeah, so, so engagement seems to be the, the, the word of the day so far on, the, on this panel anyway. Um, Annika, welcome. Um, so you're at 91 Asset Management, um, through various funds, they're still exposed to probably more than a billion dollars in total of uh, oil and gas major equity. Um, I'm not holding you to account for the entire strategy of 91, but is, would you concur then that engagement is, is the aim of the game at the moment and just straight up divestment is suboptimal? I think that you have to firstly acknowledge that not 
all oil and gas is created equal. I think if you walk into this debate and you assume that all companies are on the same trajectory, you are going to, you know, put your feet in hot water. And I think Peter kind of touched on that with, um, you know, the shells and BPs of this yeah. world versus some of the U.S. majors, where they are almost worlds apart. Yeah. And understanding the nuance of that and understanding what that means for the short, medium and long term, both from, um, you know, the revenue that they're going to generate, what the alpha that you can potentially generate and the transition risk of those companies is super, super important. We are at 91, are a firm that, you know, we, we committed to net zero, we're a signatory of IGCC, we're part of GFANS. Um, we have... 58% of our assets in emerging markets. Mm-hmm. Um, that is important because a lot of what we discuss here comes from the view of developed markets. But once you get into the detail of um, disclosure, of target setting, of um, setting robust strategies, of the, the whole concept of the energy transition, the argument becomes very different when you look at it from emerging market context. Yeah. So we have developed a view, a set of tools, an approach, a view on engagement that is very, I think, roll up your sleeves, get your hands dirty, don't be scared to um, get stuck in. And the reason why I say that is because um, divestment would be the optimal outcome if you're setting portfolio decarbonization targets and if I didn't want to be up on the stage talking about this subject. But what we know is that that doesn't achieve the objective of real-world decarbonization. Now, the question then remains, what does? You can only achieve the outcome of transitioning these big, big oil tankers by having meaningful conversations, conversations that are um, that are informed by the frameworks that the likes of the IGCC, the guidance of the likes of GFANS. Those are the types of institutions and guidelines that inform asset managers like us to sit at the, at, at the boardroom table with the sh- chair of Shell and have a meaningful conversation about their scope three target. Hmm. Because we have to be very clear about what we're asking for and the implications of that. And they, you know, when they're talking to their shareholder, have to be very clear on what is the unintended consequence or the intended consequence if they follow suit. Could divestment be a backstop? Port of last call should your engagement efforts not work? Absolutely, and I think, but the the point there is the timeline. Yeah. Well, that well on that, what do, what does success look like for for engagement? Do, so do you the the way that we are sort of very, um, you know, it's it, we've we've got our own toolkit. It's a, we've got a proprietary sort of. Um, framework that we use to assess all of our companies, specifically our oil and gas majors, and the framework allows us to unpick the detail of these companies' transition plans down to how much OPEX and CAPEX are being spent on transition-related products or, for instance, methane measurement. That is important because it helps you understand the integrity of the transition plan. Now, the output of that tool informs our engagement. So imagine it's red, amber, green across 50 indicators. Red is obviously, this is what we need to engage the company on. You then look at, that. you lay out your red flags and you say, what is achievable in one year, three years, five years, and 10 years? Mm. Assuming that you're gonna be a shareholder for that long. 
Um, and, and, and if those milestones are not met, what is the escalation policy? In some, in, in, in some instances, yes, it's, it's going to be divestment. Is, the, is, a scope is setting a scope three target enough to divest? I would argue no. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Um, Tina, we, we hear about engagement and quite often most people would associate that with equity holdings, but banks are vital when it comes to the flow of capital into these companies as well. So um, I believe you're more of the opinion that en engagement is also more worthy of a strategy than, than divestment. So how, how can a bank, how can a lender go about that when they don't have the voting power, say, of an equity holder? I mean, we work with uh, uh, we work with companies because we think uh, it's better to do the transition together. So uh, rather than throwing companies out of our portfolio from the start, we uh, rather sit together and work set up uh, uh, set up a strategy that uh, actually the company could reach their um, their 1.5 target, for example, and uh, of course. For us, we will start both on the asset management, but also on the uh, lending side. Um, we have our own strategy. If we want to reach 1.5 uh, degrees uh, in, in 2050, of course, our clients have to do the same. So we need to work with them if we're actually going to follow up on our own goals. Uh, but we also think that if you really want to cut uh, emissions, uh, it doesn't help that much to throw them out of the portfolio, but rather to push for a change. And we think that the change is coming much uh, e or come, uh, is better to drive through by working together. Uh, we need to do the same thing. It's hard to do it and we don't know how to do it. But we think working together with the clients, we could do it together, find a way together. So I think that is uh, the most important for us. Yeah, um, yeah. Peter, Peter used the word hope and we shouldn't give up hope on these companies just yet. It's, this is an open question to anyone, but I'll give it back to you, Peter, because you mentioned it. Is, is the hope that you can turn every BP, Shell, Exxon into an Orsted and get them to completely transition? Or is, is that slightly hopeful? Um, it might be unrealistic in the, uh, in the medium term, let's say. I, I think, you know, it is, to some extent, it is an investor's job is to distinguish between different companies. Um, you know, that is, that is at the heart of what traditional stock picking investing is about. So it's making those distinctions within a sector uh, between let's say, a, a particular North American oil and gas major and, and, a, and a different company that is perhaps not perfect, but which is better than the other one. But just to, just to pick up on, on one of the things that Tina and yourself, Ryan, were talking about is, is, is the other channels like bank, banking, for example, that when you engage, if you want to engage with a sector, you, can't, you can engage with it both directly with companies in that sector, or indeed you can engage with the facilitators of financing to that sector. Um, in particular banks, but for that matter also, also insurers. And it's, uh, I think it's quite an interesting growth area for engagement. Um, and there is, I think, 
and, and anybody can disagree with this uh, or, or give evidence to the contrary. I think there's relatively little evidence, or I say relatively, there is little evidence, full stop, of divestment achieving change with companies. Mm -hmm. However, I think there is a very interesting alternative route is through banking, or indeed through insurance, that banks and insurers may have much more leverage with the companies that they, they lend to, the, where they facilitate financing, or indeed they provide insurance, than public equities investors do directly. Yeah. We're going to take the other side of that. I want to see if anyone wants to take the devil's advocate argument here. That's, we're talking about financial institutions as, the, as they necessarily want to drive change, and that might not be true. Is there an argument to say divestment might be the financially sensible thing to do if this industry is so poorly ready for the energy transition over the long term? And would you be a, a responsible fiduciary to divest? Running your I mean, say. yeah, at, at some point, I suppose, maybe is to kind of echo a bit what, what Annika said and, and, and just drawing on that. If, if we do think we are going to come over the other side of the demand curve at some point for, for these fossil fuels, it, it does become a question about, well, who are the winners and losers in that space? Is it uh, those that can get the stuff out of the ground the cheapest or with the lowest emissions intensity or because they're based in geopolitically more friendly locations? Um, and, and it's all these things that I guess uh, you know financial institutions take into account when they're thinking, do I want to lend money uh, either perpetually for equity or just on a one-year contract for insurance mm. um, uh, in, in, into these into these into these spaces? And so it, that that might kind of you know alter your portfolio mix, I suppose, um, over time as, as you do that. Just to dwell on insurance for a second, I, I know you have thoughts about the insurance industry, particularly in America, where they're regulated at a state level and like are, are some of these groups sort of hamstrung on what they're actually able to do and we talk about the difference financial institutions are going to make, I mean it's, it's not entirely within their, their remit to, to drive the change that we want to see, or in totality anyway. Yeah, I mean, to Peter's point, ins insurance can be incredibly powerful because everyone needs it <laughs> uh, to operate, whether that's directors of, of a company to protect their liability versus, you know, everything down to the properties and, and so forth. I think one of the interesting dynamics in, in that sector is that you end up with different bits of the business kind of interacting here. So if I'm insuring stuff that is facilitating uh, emissive activity, am I dis causing disruption to my property business because they're going to be more exposed to extreme weather events going forward? Mm -hmm. Now, at a company level, you might think, well, look, <laughs> I can't really do anything about that if the rest of the world isn't getting on board with, with dealing with climate change, and yeah. so that's why there's a collective action problem here. But, you know, if, if there is a collective action amongst insurers to, to, to recognise that, that sort of um, business strategy risk, I suppose, from uh, working with one bit of business and not, not recognizing another, then they could be creating risks, risks for themselves. And so again, it sort of points back to this need for uh, them to ask companies to, to, to lay out what the strategy is for, for, for transition, and including um, you know, the, the, the implications of that for the, the risks that need, need insuring in those businesses, and including, in fact, liability um, or litigation type type liability risks that, 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 that are seeming to be emerging ever more uh, as well. So it's, it's a very complex picture in insurance, but I think it's yeah. going to be really interesting. 
Yeah, I mean, Annika, you're you're nodding uh, away there. Do, do you do you want to come in on that and maybe speak a little bit about you know is, is 91 perhaps constrained in anything that it's able to do? I know yeah. nearly 60% do you said of your AUM is in emerging. emerging markets. Yep. Yeah. So I, I'm going to touch on two things. One was what you just the, the sort of challenge of of divestment and. I think what we have to remember, often when we have these conversations, there's an echo chamber, mm -hmm. right? Like, no one's standing up throwing eggs at us because, you know, there's, it's, it's, we're all, we all believe in doing the right thing. The question is how. Now, there are a lot of rooms where people are having conversations that don't believe in doing <coughs> what we're talking about. And it's very interesting as an asset manager to have a range of clients, some who are ruthless about net zero, and some who see net zero on your website and want to take you to task on it. Yeah. And navigating that space and that complexity is very interesting because ultimately the conversation that you have with certain clients, for instance, in the States, who, you know, you, if, you, if you're answering an RFP and they say, are you committed to net zero or have any kind of climate process in your investment process or your fundamental analysis and you say yes, you're out of the game or they penalize you. Okay, so that's the reality. The way you have to approach and articulate that conversation is around the commercial viability of green and of the transition. It's not about climate. It's not about doing the right thing. It's about what is in the short, medium and long term, the most commercially viable opportunity for this sector, for this company. And it is a very similar conversation to the companies and the clients that we have in emerging markets. You speak to a Nigerian private equity player. They are not talking about Africa needs to decarbonize. They are talking about energy security. Where the transition meets energy security is where this all becomes a very easy conversation because there's no trade-off. And I think keeping that in mind in terms of how the narrative develops, you don't want to bifurcate this because then we've got two rooms. We want to be in one room talking about the same thing, which is allocating capital to the transition in a way that generates, you know, generates alpha. Our pensioners can earn their pension. Everybody, everybody's happy. But you're not leaving people out of the room. Very good. I'm very I'm cognizant. One final question uh, to you, Tina. Is there is there a slight is there a concern about maturity mismatch? If you have a loan that has a five year five year tenor, is that still viable for the oil and gas industry? Is it, is it are they still credit worthy to pay back their loans? And if so, is it not something that a bank wants to engage with? They want to provide that credit to to the oil and gas just because it's it's economically viable. Anika's just mentioned commercial viability. I, I guess that's the whole point uh, that uh, depends on what kind of company it is, where it's uh, having their operations, for example, because if you want to go into somewhere which is, uh, you know, long term projects or, or very difficult to, uh, to, to get the uh, energy out in the market, that would, of course, have higher risk. So it's this, uh, you know, tuning in how is the risk and how is the opportunity in this? And that, of course, will have uh, an impact on the risk premium and also you, either the risk premium, also the uh, length of how much capital you will get. 
for the future. So, of course, it has an impact and that's changed as well. For the last 10 years, uh, it's uh, more difficult now for an oil and gas company uh, to get a loan or credit which lasts for a longer time, a period of time. And especially if you don't have a plan, and that's in Europe, of course, uh, if you don't have a plan for how you will see the energy transition. So I think more openness, more transparency in how you're, um, how you're working within this area, with the changes that's going on in the macroeconomy, uh, and openness about that, uh, that will have an impact on the uh, evaluation on the risk and of, of course the access to capital. Wonderful. Um, could you please all show your appreciation for the panelists they've been talking about? Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.